Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Hello, friends. Thank you so much for being here. It's wonderful to see you all. And thank you for joining us on this very special day leading up to a very important weekend where Tu Bishvat and MLK Day will coincide, where our advocacy for environmental justice and racial justice uh, intersect. Um, And so in that spirit, we have this great opportunity to um, explore one of the great works of CCAR Press. We are thrilled to have Rabbi Barry Bullock here with us today. Also, Raphael, who is the great um, editor, the head of CCR Press, um, which is just a, a marvelous, marvelous uh, pr- uh, publishing house, does terrific work. And we're going to explore one of their books today. And I hope you'll look into many of their others as well to talk about this new publication, the Social Justice Torah Commentary. This talk with Rabbi Barry Block today, he serves as as um, Rabbi Congregation B'nai Israel in Little Rock, Arkansas, a Houston native and graduate of Amherst College. Rabbi Block was ordained by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion in New York in 1991, and he received his DD honoris causa in 2016, a member of the CCAR Board of Trustees, currently serving as Vice President of Organizational Relationships. Rabbi Block is the editor of the Musar Torah Commentary, published by CCR Press in 2020, which was a finalist for the National Jewish Book Award. He also contributed to several earlier CCR anthologies, including Inscribed, Encounters with the Ten Commandments, great book, The Sacred Exchange, excellent, The Sacred Encounter, Navigating the Journey and a Life of Meaning, Embracing Reform Judaism, Sacred Path. Wonderful books. And he is a regular contributor to the CCAR Journal. Rabbi Black currently serves as faculty dean at URJ Henry S. Jacobs Camp, similar to a role he previously held for 21 years at URJ Green Family Camp. He is a past board chair of Planned Parenthood of South Texas. He is the proud father of Robert and Daniel. And I am uh, thrilled to welcome Rabbi Block to share a little bit of content from the book, uh, from his thinking, and after his sheer or presentation, um, I'll have the chance to ask him a few questions. And then we will open it up to all of you to engage a bit with this. And we will be sure to post the book in the chat as well if you uh, want to tell, want to check it out. So with that, um, Rabbi Block, thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much, Rabbi Shmuley Um, It really is an honor to be here with you. I, I uh, want to be sure that all of um, the participants today know that Rabbi Yankowitz is a contributor to the Social Justice Torah Commentary and to the aforementioned Musar Torah Commentary, and, uh, and, and I'm really grateful for that. So people often ask me, why a Social Justice Torah Commentary? And the answer is that I think just about any rabbi has at some point been confronted by a person who said, Rabbi, we want you to teach Torah, not politics. And I, part of my response is that I don't preach politics. I certainly have my partisan views, but, but I don't express them from the pulpit. 
Um, and, uh, you know, the Johnson Amendment says that we don't retain our tax-exempt status if we are using our religious uh, pulpit to um, uh, to support or oppose a candidate for office. Lots of, lots of folks in other uh, faith traditions do that, but we don't do that. But what we do is that we speak out for justice on the basis of Torah. And part of my answer to, you know, Rabbi, teach Torah, don't teach politics is that we cannot, with integrity, teach Torah without talking about how our society ought to be organized to achieve maximum justice for everyone, particularly for those who are most in need, particularly for those whose voices have not always been heard. In fact, the Torah itself is from beginning to end, and it doesn't end, of course, a document that is about how a community lives together, how the people in that community are to treat one another, the most vulnerable among them, and those beyond the community. For remembering the stranger, for we were stranger in Egypt, is such an important commandment that it's repeated 36 times, which we'll get to a little more deeply in a moment. But this is part of the reason that I wrote the book, or that I edited the book, excuse me, that I proposed the book and edited the book, is that sometimes when people speak from a Jewish standpoint on matters of social justice, they do so on a very thin basis. That is to say that there are great principles of Torah, but Selim Elohim, every single one of us is created in God's image. Tzedek, tzedek, tirdof, justice, justice shall you pursue. And the aforementioned, remember the stranger. Sometimes we don't go any deeper than that when we're going to make a point about social justice. And the social justice Torah commentary invited rabbis and scholars, a cantor, lay leaders to delve deeply into each Parsha and into the Parshanut, into the commentary, the traditional Midrash, the traditional readings of, of the, the Parsha by the sages, and also modern explications, modern Midrash, um, modern interpretations. And the author's own interpretations of, of the Parsha in order to develop a social justice argument deeply rooted in the Parsha, not just on the surface. So I thought I would share an example. And, um, you know, there are uh, people, you know, who do sort of like a parlor game trick, which is, um, you know, opening up a, a book and you're sort of pointing to any page and then they can teach from any page. My version of that is that when I'm invited to speak about the social justice Torah commentary, I open to the Torah portion of the week and I make a source sheet based on whatever parasha we, have, we happen to be reading, not my own source sheet. I want to be very clear. I, well, yes, I make the source sheet. But I make the source sheet based entirely on what the author of the chapter for this parasha in the Social Justice Torah commentary did. So this week's this week we are reading Parashat B'Shalach. And the entry on Parashat B'Shalach 
is written by Cantor Seth Warner. He's the Cantor of Congregation Chariamath in, in uh, St. Louis. And, it, and his chapter is called Our Obligations to Dreamers and to Ourselves. And so you might think that it's an essay about um, the DREAM Act and, and, and about dreamers and about deferred action for childhood arrivals. And it's so much more what it is really is a commentary on Parashat um, B'Shalach that we're reading this week. So I'm going to share this with you. I said, there we go. Can you guys see my, my uh, screen share now? Okay, good. So we're going to begin with, um, with the Parsha itself. Um, oh, what did I do? I did something bad that made it look like I'm trying to edit the sheet, but um, I'm, I'm uh, technically challenged a little bit, but all right. So, so, um, so we're reading, um, of course, from Exodus chapter 14, starting at verse 26. And Adonai said to Moses, hold out your hand over the sea that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians and upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. Moses held out his arm over the sea and at daybreak the sea returned to its normal state and the Egyptians fled at its approach. But Adonai hurled the Egyptians into the sea. The waters turned back and covered the chariots and horsemen. Pharaoh's entire army that followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the Israelites had marched through the sea on dry ground, the waters forming a wall for them on the right and on their left. Thus Adonai delivered Israel that day from the Egyptians. Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the shores of the sea. And when Israel saw the wondrous power which Adonai had wielded against the Egyptians, the people feared Adonai. They had faith in Adonai and God's servant Moses. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to Adonai. They said, and then I skipped down here. Mikamocha boili maronai, Mikamocha nedaba kodesh, no ratiloto sefele. Now, um, it is unfortunate that we don't have Cantor Warner here today because I'm not, uh, I'm not the world's great cousin. I'm not even the world's mediocre cousin. But um, what did you notice about the way that I chanted those verses? Anybody notice anything? It's the same chop as um, as as the Shir Hayam. Shir Hayam. Well, that was because it was Shir Hayam. It was Shir Hayam. Okay, so so I was chanting Shir Hayam, and and it, what it is not is regular Torah trope, the regular trope that that we use to chant the Torah week after week. But instead, it's a special trope for for Shirat Hayam. And um, so Cantor Warner writes, the Shirah describes a pivotal point in our people's existence, the transition from captivity to freedom. The text and cantillation point a picture of hope, paint a picture of hope and, and change. The cantillation uses a different melody for the Shirah, different from any other in the Tanakh as a way to draw attention to this pivotal point in the relationship between God and the Israelites. 
So I, I, I particularly invited a cantor to write on this parsha because I knew that a cantor would draw out something different from what a rabbi might. And he points to he to the the different way of singing. You know, that's going to call people's attention. If you're in if you're in the synagogue every week and you're used to hearing right, right? So that's the trope you're used to hearing. And then all of a sudden you hear even in the middle of, re of hearing a tar reading, you know that something different and something special is going on here. And Cantor, Cantor Warner says it's to point to that this pivotal moment in our relationship with God. Moses is said to have sung the Shirah in a special voice. So the idea is, the tradition is, that that doesn't come from, uh, you know, some medieval uh, uh, writers of a cantillation system, but it's from Moses himself that, um, that we have this special tune to glorify God's saving power. And the melody reflects that shift from biblical narrative to Moses's words. So, so if you were reading along, you, you would have in the, in the verses before, you would, you would, Az Yashir Moshe, Uvene Israel, Etashira Hazot Ladonai, Bayomeru Ladonai, Ashira Ladonai, Kigaoga, Susrochbo Ramavayam. A cantor would have more skillfully done the abrupt change, but, but you heard the change um, from one tune to the other. So, so um, the change in melody further emphasizes that God is saving and claiming the Israelite people. The two now have an unbreakable bond. Now, I added the emphasis there, the bold type saving and claiming. And I wonder what, what any of you think Kenner um, Warner might have meant to emphasize that God here is saving and claiming the Israelite people. So I won't I won't make you uh, work too hard, but 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 um, I think Hannah Ward is trying to say that that God is not only doing something wonderful for the people, but also the idea is that God is is um, is is, uh, is 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 doing um, doing something to um, is 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 seeking to to bring us into a new obligation. So then Canon Warner goes back to the beginning of the book of Exodus and reminds us that a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph and said to his people, look, the Israelite people are much too numerous for us. Let us deal shrewdly with them, that they may not increase. Otherwise, in the event of war, they may join our enemies in fighting against us from the ground. And he continues by reminding us that our American government often treats immigrants with an attitude similar to that of the Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. The stated reason for Pharaoh's hatred of the Israelites is that they're growing too numerous and can become a potential enemy of the Egyptians. This ideology is shared thousands of years later in our country as xenophobia veiled as security concerns about those who those seeking a secure home in our country. There's a reason that Rabbi Shmuley is so often leading, perhaps some of you, into activism at the border near where you're located, near much nearer where you're located than where I am, um, even though I'm a Texan and used to be nearer the border. Um, but um, but but there's a reason why why Rabbi Shmuley is often leading you into activism. 
baptism there. And it is because God has claimed the people of Israel for this process of remembering the stranger and as a people saved by God with an obligation to God. And that we are hearing in those who oppose the um, oppose safe immigration, we're hearing echoes of the very Pharaoh who oppressed us. And so then Cantor Warner points to a verse that comes a little bit after this week's portion, you shall not wrong or a stranger or oppress them for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. And he says that this text, while outside of this partial refers to freedom, the Israelites inherited in it. It is repeated more than any commandment in the Torah 36 times, which we understand as double high or two lives. And then Cantor Warner says that the message is, consider both your lives, yours and strangers, as equally important in the eyes of God. So double high for your life and the stranger's life. That's why that commandment is mentioned 36 times, Cantor Warner teaches us. And he turns to a text um, from uh, a, a, a halachic uh, discussion called Pnine Halacha, um, the passage on Pesach, which says, and additionally discussing the fact that we were ignoble slaves awakens our sensitivity and consideration for strangers and for the unfortunate who suffer and need help. So, so we remember that we were strangers, that we were slaves in order to spur us to action. And then Rabbi Cantor Warner quotes Rabbi David Jaffe. Um, also, I'm sure Rabbi Shmuley knows Rabbi David Jaffe, who was also a, 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 a contributor to the, the Musar Torah commentary. This commandment is not as, not as simple to fulfill as it is easy on the eyes. So remember the stranger, it's easy on the eyes. It sounds good, we like it. Rabbi Jaffe notes the commandment is directed at a people that was once vulnerable, but is now in a position of power in relation to the vulnerable people in our society. And you might think of that as directed at us. We, most, most of us, North American Jews, Israeli Jews, are in a powerful position in relation to vulnerable people in our society. Most of us, of course, there are vulnerable people in, inside our communities as well. Um, but I think Rabbi Jaffe is talking about the ancient Israelites. That the reason that the Torah itself says, remember the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt, is because the ancient Israelites to whom the Torah is addressed originally are powerful in relation to vulnerable people among them. Absent a process of dealing with the transition from, from vulnerability to power, contemporary Jewish communities are at risk of mistreating the vulnerable in their own societies. By repeating the injunction so many times, Torah hopes to habituate even the powerful Israelite or contemporary Jew to break the inclination to become the oppressor. You know, I recall um, talking with um, a physician friend um, who was in the years after residency at a time when um, 
some of you are old enough to remember when, um, if you if you were, if you are a physician or you um, have friends or family members who are physicians, when medical residents worked 36 hour shifts, as in, uh, shifts of a length that are, are not legal actually these days, um, it, because it wasn't safe, right? I mean, because they were treating patients when they hadn't slept in two days. Um, and, uh, and, and, some of the, the physicians who'd already been through residencies thought that it was awful that these rules had been changed, that, that, that the new young doctors should have to go through what they had gone through. That, that um, you, you know, and, and um, so, so Rabbi Jaffe's speaking the truth when he says, you know, people who've been oppressed need some transition between being oppressed people and uh, being and 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 to to uh, resist becoming oppressors but rather to become people who who um recall their oppression as a um as a warrant for bringing freedom to others ideally writes Cantor warner when saying you love yourself so he's talking here a little bit about love your neighbor as yourself or love the stranger. You are inherently acknowledging your imperfections. You're trying to appreciate what they, those imperfections have taught you and are striving to fold those teachings into the values of your life. When we understand our propensity to become the oppressor, in other words, we, each of us needs to like really examine how am I enjoying my privilege? as a citizen, for example, um, is our propensity to become strained to the oppressor. As Rabbi Jaffe suggests, we must, we can acknowledge our own trauma of oppression and therefore be inclined to feel more naturally loving, embracing, and truly interested in the stranger we encounter. When, so, so when we like encounter how like, how it is that, that Whatever traumas we've experienced in our lives lead us to oppress others, then that needs to change us and say, no, no, instead of, instead of lashing out because of the way I was lashed out at, I need to be inclined, incline myself to becoming more loving, embracing, and truly interested in the stranger I encounter. When accepting responsibility for the stranger, we're affirming our love for that person. And Cantor Warner then says, since we don't expect a biblical God to intervene and protect those oppressed in our world today, the responsibility for their safety and well-being falls to us. So we are bimkom Elohim. We are in God's place. Just as God says to Moses, I'm going to place you as God to Pharaoh with Aaron as your prophet. God, according to Cantor Warner here, is placing us as God to the society to bring forth um, those who are oppressed by immigration injustice into freedom. We mortals may not be able to part rivers or bring about biblical plagues, but we can employ appropriate measures to assist others toward freedom. Throughout history, humanity has been called to, upon to help refugees in need. And throughout history, since the parting of the Red Sea, we Jews have been called upon to help those in need by loving and caring for them as if they were our own. And in conclusion, when the Israelites cross the Red Sea, the Shirah proclaims their unabashed glorification of God and the joy of freedom. Guided by God, they are shown to the promised land. Our freedom comes with the enduring responsibility to see to it that all people can sing their own shira, not necessarily, not our shira, their shira, 
to like live as to live as their own way. So so very often in our society we're told, well, okay, if they come here, but then they speak English, become American, do it our way. No, you become part of the rich and vibrant and diverse fabric of American society, sing their own song of freedom, sing their own shira, their own song to the God-given right of the God-given right to freedom. So I want to emphasize that, as I mentioned at the top, part of the reason for this book is that some who work and argue um, for uh, social justice as Jews do so on a pretty limited and, and uh, flimsy and thin basis. And the person who much more than me is working to counteract that is Rabbi Shmuel Yankowitz. We're talking about here the not the editor of a of, of an anthology written by 50-something other people, but but instead the author of a social justice um, commentary of Pir Kavot, a social justice commentary of, of the book of Jonah, um, and so forth and so on. And which one is coming next? It's there's one, Raphael, which which book is coming next? It's very soon. The book of Proverbs. We're uh, very excited right. about it. All right, the social justice commentary of Proverbs. So, 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 so Rabbi Shmuelakowitz is, is teaching us all how to go to the depth, go in depth in our study to um, motivate us to, to social justice. So, Rabbi Shmuelakowitz, I will turn it over to you because you wanted to to ask me some questions and and talk together. Amazing, amazing presentation. Thank you so much. It's such an honor to learn from you and from this great book and to have Raphael here as well. Um, and uh, we do wanna be sure to engage others in their questions. Um, and just to, just to kick it off a little bit on a, personal, on a personal front for you, what was your own personal journey in coming to, um, you know, through your adulthood, your, your childhood or young adulthood of coming to really experience vulnerability in the world, experience our human capacity, our Jewish capacity to create change, to lift up others. And how has that kind of evolved all, you know, to this point of, of publication? So it's, um, I appreciate you're asking the question. So, so I grew up, I would say in privilege in Houston and my parents um, are um, from what they call the silent generation. Um, their generation never had a president from their generation until just now, <laughs> till this year or one year ago. Um, but uh, and and uh, in keeping with with their being part of the silent generation, my parents, although both born and raised in Houston, so very much there in the South, um, did not participate in the in the civil rights movement. Um, they would say that they quietly supported it, but they didn't participate in it. Um, but unlike most of their peers, my parents had a sort of an awakening in the 70s. Um, and um, I was welcomed into that awakening, I suppose. And I, I really want to um, lift up my father because um, my parents' marriage ended um, when my mother, I'm just going to sort of compress the story and say that my, my mother came out as, as lesbian. And um, in the 19, that was in 1978. 
And uh, some of you are old enough to think back to 1978 and to think of how uh, gays and lesbians were regarded in our society in, 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 in that era. And yet my father, angry as he was about the personal situation, was and is to this day at the age of 84, um, a, um, a person who argued vociferously for equal rights for LGBT people, for, for same-sex marriage and, and, and all of that kind of thing. And so I, I, um, I became, I, I was sort of um, um, raised into this, this um, social um, awareness through um, my parents. Um, and, in, and, and uh, my mother was the more activist one, but, but, it, but my, the story about my father is especially moving to me because, because it was almost sort of, if you will, against his interests or surprising to people that he took that stance. Um, and um, I was in the Reformed Jewish Youth Movement, NIFTY, and worked at, at, at URJ camp, and that, that, that introduced me to social justice activism. And, and when I lived in South Texas, much of my social justice activism was about LGBT issues, and, and that I was in 20, for 21 years at Temple Bethel in San Antonio, and, and you know, that was during an era of, of rapidly changing um, situation for, for gays and lesbians. And, and also, I was, as um, Rabbi Shmuley mentioned, I was the, the board chair of Planned Parenthood. So I've been very involved in, in choice. Only when I came to Little Rock, which was eight years now, it's almost nine years ago in 2013, did I did I start to become very involved in racial justice. And um, you know, when I was a child, knowing that all four of my grandparents were born in the South, and that four only four of my great grandparents were American born, and all four of those were Southern born, all four. And the, and the four who were immigrants came pretty much directly to the South of my great-grandparents. So it occurred to me at some point, I wonder if some of them fought for the Confederacy and I asked as a preteen, but what was important to, is that the answer was yes, but that no one in my family had ever bragged about it and never did thereafter. They didn't hide the truth from me when I asked, but they didn't brag about it. Actually, my parents didn't know, my grandparents knew because um, it was their grandparents. And um, more recently, actually, as I was completing the work on this book, I learned that um, at least one ancestor of mine was an enslaver. A distant relative found um, our, my great-great-great-grandmother listed as an enslaver in the 1860 Louisiana slave census. So we've been doing some work to try to identify whether it's possible to um, identify who that woman was or who her descendants might be. Um, there's through some ancestry DNA testing, a, another member of this same family has found a, um, a, a relative who's black, which, which does suggest that, that um, perhaps my great great grandfather or his brother raped um, a woman who was, who was enslaved. Um, so um, it's, um, it's a disturbing history and gives me an added measure of responsibility towards reparations. Rabbi Judy Schindler, um, you know, who's really a great social justice hero nationally, lives in Charlotte. Um, Rabbi Judith Schindler um, wrote a chapter on reparations um, in, this, in the social justice to our commentary. And I don't pretend to know exactly what, what reparations ought to look like, 
Um, but part of what it needs to look like um, is, is a reordering of our society in a way that formerly enslaved people have um, gained privileges that uh, you and I enjoy and, uh, and they do not. Rabbi Schindler's piece, by the way, is on Parshat Akev. And um, Rabbi Shmuley, if I could quickly ask you a question, it is that to tell everyone that I did not ask people, um, you know, would you please write on this topic? Instead, I said, would you please write on this Parsha? Right? So I asked you um, to write on Parshat Shmini. And you assumed, you assumed he's asking the Orthodox rabbi to write on a portion that has to do with kashrus. So, okay, I'm not sure that I'm not, that I'm totally not guilty on that front, except you're not the only Orthodox rabbi who wrote for the book and I didn't give everybody Shmini. So, so um, I didn't say what, what topic I wanted you to write on. I just said, what Parsha, how did you come to write and, and tell everybody what you wrote about and how you came to that through, through Parsha Shmini. Well, thank you for asking. And I love, I love uh, starting from the Torah and then um, working to society rather than the other way around. So Yashikach on that as well. And um, I, um, I, I have been very inspired by the calling towards um, an, an ethical kashrut movement to view whatever way we we engage the the concept and 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 actuality of kashrut in our own lives as an ethical force for worker justice for animal rights for environmental justice for human health for fair trade policies um and i really believe that the deeper thrust of kashrut is towards an ethical and spiritual consciousness around consumption. And you're, you're correct that I just assumed, uh, since I, I do oftentimes get engaged around that topic, that that's where I thought you were going towards. And if somebody wasn't engaged with ethical kashrut, Shmini would be a, a difficult social justice parsha, as some others might have been for others. You know, Kula Kavoda, whoever you got to write on all the tabernacle parshiot. <laughs> you know, that's a lot of fun. Um, and so, um, and so, yeah, and I really do think actually that the greatest vehicle for spirituality that we have, the greatest vehicle, is is the vehicle of the bracha, because tefillah is limited. Tefillah is is in the morning, maybe it's on Shabbat, maybe you do mincha or marif, whenever somebody does an act of prayer. But the bracha, the blessing, can can penetrate throughout the day, and it's interconnected with what we're actually doing in the moment. And what do we do more than anything else in the day besides breathe is eat, <laughs> at least if you're like me. And so the opportunity to spiritually be uplifted through the moral mandates of, of consumption. And so I was uh, thrilled to work through that, through, you know, work through that with you. Well, thanks. You know, you know, it's interesting what you say about all those, all those um, difficult parts of the Torah. I, I once gave a sermon years and years ago called The Boring Parts of the Torah, which was really about um, Vayakhel and Pekudei, um, about the last two portions, of what you just said about the tabernacle, the last two portions at the end of Exodus, because not only are they about all these very specific um, aspects of building the tabernacle, Vayakhel and Pekudei are almost 
almost verbatim recapitulations of of Truman Sof. So it's um it's it's um it's it's it, they, they they could be really difficult. And yet, just to cite one example, Rabbi Craig Lewis writes about about Parshat Pekudei. He writes about the breastplate of this with the with the twelve um, stones that and and um, many of you may be familiar with the with the well known traditional. Um, uh, uh, interpretation about how the stones were in four rows of three so that there was no stone at the center representing the 12 tribes no one stone had a higher place than the other um so they all have this certain equality to it well rabbi lewis took it a step further and he said look each tribe is represented by a different precious stone and rabbi lewis did some work in like learning about how different precious stones are cared for. And in order to care equally well, let's say for a sapphire and a ruby, you have to do different things. It's not the same process taking care of a ruby just as well as you need to take care of a sapphire. And from that, he constructed an argument about education equity saying that what you need to do, what we as a society need to do to provide excellent education for every child doesn't mean that we need to spend exactly the same amount of money or provide exactly the same type of education to every child because one is a sapphire and one is a ruby and each one needs something different and another's an emerald. So, so, so people do find, in the, by the way, the point of that sermon I gave a million years ago on, on, on the boring parts of the Torah is there is no boring part of the Torah as long as you're willing to get into it and find what's meaningful. I mean, I thought you were going to say Tazria, and our colleague, really your colleague, Maharat Mori Pickernese, wrote something so important on, on, um, on Parashat Tazria, which is about... I mean, it's about something arcane and a, a ritual that many of us may find offensive that has to do with, with a, a, um, the a person who's given birth having to be um, sequestered with their newborn for 30 days if it's a male, 60 if it's a female. And then, but what Rabbi, what Marat Pekernese points to is that they bring the same um, sacrifice at the end, which um, Nachmanides, she teaches us that Nachmanides tells us that it's a ransom for for the childbearer getting her body back whole to herself. Because of course the fetus in our tradition is part of the person's of the pregnant person's body. So now the childbearer has her body back and she gives this sacrifice. And it's the same for everybody, for every childbearer whose whose child reaches that um, age of safety and Thanksgiving. And, and her point was we need to be providing the same level of care to every childbearer and every baby that's born. You know, we have in this country um, lim um, levels of infant and childbirth mortality that are much higher than most of the, of, of the wealthy industrialized world. And of course, it's all equal inside this country, much higher among communities of color, much higher among poor people. And so that's the that's the where where Maharat Pikrinis goes with such a parsha is Tasria. So so um, it's it's uh, Raphael and I continued to be um, blown away as we kept getting in these chapters. I have to tell you. Let me ask you one other quick question, and then we'll open it up to everyone else here. Um, you know, obviously this isn't written solely for the reform movement, but that's the primary audience here. Um, and I wonder with the reform movement in America today's engagement with social justice work. 
what would you say is going really well in that regard? And what would some examples you'd point to? And what are, do you think are some challenges and some struggles for, for the reform movement's engagement in social justice work? That's, that's the, thank you for the question. So, 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 you know, what's the definition of going well is for, is, is also, is, 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 is a really important part of the question. So, so I would say that, that if, if what's going well is what unites our community, well, let, let me say that, that to me, the, the, the issue on which it's going the best is LGBTQ equality. We certainly are not there, but unlike so many other justice issues in our world today, LGBTQ equality seems to be continuing to go in the right direction. Um, and um, same-sex marriage, marriage equality, I should say, seems to be settled law. Um, the, you know, there was a there was a strong majority opinion that you can't be fired by the Supreme Court, including, you know, Trump appointee that you can't fire someone for for being gay or lesbian or transgender even. So and furthermore, and another definition of what's going well is it's an issue that unites our community, and another definition of what's going well is that high proportion of folks who come to us for conversion are LGBTQ folks who've found their prior religious homes no longer welcoming to them or no longer home for them and are looking for a new religious home. And so there, there's a variety of ways in which I would say that, that the struggle for LGBTQ equality was something I've been involved in throughout my whole rabbi. I've been a rabbi for, um, it, it'll be uh, 31 years this, this May. Um, so so um, that's something I would say that's going well. I would say that, that, that um, what is the second hardest issue is, um, is racial justice. And um, what do I think is going fairly well is the increasing recognition that we are not a monochromatic community ourselves, that, that um, we have Jews of color in our midst and that the struggle for racial justice includes everyone. Um, where um, it's going poorly is that um, those who, um, there, there are folks who, who write off movements like Black Lives Matter simply because of one organization's positions on, on Israel, for example. Um, and, and sort of, and not only that, but sort of, um, and, and Ken Chasen writes really well in the, Rabbi Ken Chasen writes really well in the Social Justice Torah Commentary about the struggle in, in Black Jewish relations. Um, for example, how, how badly he writes that, that Jews responded to defund the police and didn't try to come to understand it before rejecting it. Um, of course, the hardest issue is, 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 um, is, this, is the, the fight for social justice in Israel. Um, I would say our community is quite united, um, as is really the whole North American Jewish community from modern Orthodox all the way left um, about, about religious pluralism in Israel. Um, but when we talk about the occupation, I mean, we are divided amongst ourselves, and sometimes those 
those discussions within our communities become toxic. And so uh, in the social justice Torah commentary, it's not toxic, but we have two pieces on, on um, one on Parshat Lech Lecha by Rabbi Jeremy Barris and one on Parshat Bihar by Rabbi Jill Jacobs, um, both talking about being worthy of the land. And while they both draw deeply from the Parsha on which they're writing, they also both draw from a different text the same one, they both draw from the same text that the land will spew out, vomit out its inhabitants if they're not righteous. Rabbi Barris applies that to Palestinians um, who support terrorism, and, and, and Rabbi Jacobs applies that to um, the, the people of, of Israel um, if, if we continue the occupation. And separately, Rabbi Ethan Baer writes on Parshat Korach that we really ought to regard our disagreements um, about Israel as machlochet l'shem shemaim, as a as an argument for the sake of heaven, and not exclude people whose views of Israel are different from yours or mine. That's the hardest. That's the one that's not going. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, friends, let's open it up to you. We'd love to hear questions you want to ask Rabbi Block about this book about. Um, and beyond, and some of the ideas involved. Please uh, unmute yourselves. Hi, um, just a question. I, I mean, to me, it think, I feel that from halachic sources, the most important thing is universal health care and a minimum wage. You have to pay the person a fair amount. Uh, we're, we're, we have to, you know, there's nothing more important than healing. Is, is that something that anybody writes about in your book? And is that a social action that, um, <clears throat> that you're involved with or anybody else in the movement? Well, absolutely. Um, and and um, I mean, we've, our movement has been, you know, at the forefront of activism for, for universal health care and, and, and um, Rabbi Asher Knight, you know, so, so one, of the, one of the realities of this book is that I proposed this book in late 2019. And then I was recruiting um, authors in the spring of 2020. And it was written almost entirely in the summer and the early fall of 2020. Well, think about that. So, so it was written in the midst of a global pandemic, in the crucible of um, racial justice struggles, when people are becoming increasingly aware that racial injustice endures, and at the same time there's a backlash, um, is being written at the time of this fraught presidential election and threats to our democracy. So, so I mean, all that's going on at the time that the book is being written. And um, Rabbi Asher Knight proposed to write on Parashat Matsara on injustices that are revealed by plagues and pandemics. And um, I'll confess that, that, that a concern Raphael and I had at the time was, how do we make sure it's not a journal article that you know, is relevant for this month, but then doesn't belong in a book that's gonna be in print for some time? I, I feel certain that neither Raphael nor I thought that we would, be, um, we, we would be talking on Zoom in January of 2022, um, hunkered down in our homes because of, a, of, a, because of the ongoing, the same global pandemic. Um, but, but be that as it may, um, Really, what what Rabbi Knight writes about is 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 timeless, you know, um, timeless in that in the Torah itself, there's a problem of victim. No, I shouldn't say the Torah itself. In the rabbi's reading of Parshat Mitzorah, there's a problem of victim blaming. 
In other words, that, that the people who come down with this disease are viewed as, uh, the, the disease is viewed as either a metaphor for or the result of um, Lashon Hara. So it's, if, if you read it as, as the result of, then, then, then the people who get sick, it's their fault because they, uh, they were gossiping and slandering. So um, victim blaming, I mean, think of how many people um, got COVID and, or today unvaccinated people and how we talk about it, it's their own fault and it's their, or they weren't responsible, they went there, you know, so, so blaming victims, that's a timeless aspect of illness in general. Um, and then of how that illness, in the case of COVID, um, increasing, uh, you know, if impacts people of color and low-income people, so and people who live in close quarters, which is often the same as poor people, right? Um, so much more than others, disproportionately, right? We learned that especially early in the pandemic. But that's true of so many illnesses that have a much greater and more deleterious effect on, on poor people without, without adequate access to good nutrition and healthcare and, and all those kinds of things. So that, that's, the, that's the, the chapter that comes immediately to mind. There are others that are on mental illness. And, 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 and so yes, yes, healthcare is important to us. But, but I, I, I particularly commend to you the chapter on Parshat Mitzara. Great, who else wants to jump in here? Do you think that there's something about Judaism and our view of ourselves as the few and the proud that makes us um, less sympathetic to people who aren't of the few and the proud. So we say we've had more Nobel Prize winners than anybody else. We're closer to God and we, and we look down on, uh, and we say orla goyim, like we have something to teach all the rest of the world that would make us less sympathetic to the rest of the world. It reminds me of something that my father says about why um, he didn't send me to Jewish day school as a child, which, which means I have an inferior Jewish education, but, um, but uh, which the Hebrew Union College really tried to, to correct. But, but um, when I was growing up, the only option for Jewish day school in Houston that wasn't Orthodox, which was Orthodox would have just not been considered by my family, um, was, was, was at a conservative synagogue. And my father's impression of the children who went there was that they were Jewish superiorists. I think, I think by the way, he was wrong about that, about the kids who went to Beth Yisrael Day School in Houston, <laughs> but, but um, at the Schechter School in Houston. But, 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 uh, and, and in fact, there's a whole irony in this, which is that the Reformed Jewish Day School in Houston is, is named in memory of my grandfather. So, but, which happened later. I was already well out of school. Um, but but um, I do think we have a problem with Jewish superiority. Um, you, you know, back in the days when people um, forwarded emails all the time, instead of, because before they were posting it on Facebook, um, you know, that, that email that would go around about how many Jewish Nobel Prize winners and how few um, Arab or Muslim, Muslim Nobel Prize winners there were, um, always made me ill. And I always had to decide as a congregational rabbi, do I respond and like explain why this is a problematic email or do, do I just quietly delete it? Um, 
And, um, you know, so I, I think you're right, Judy, to point that out as a problem. I, 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 I suppose that part of the answer is that that people like Rabbi Shmuley and myself and and and, and others um, are working against that simply by by and and the fifty something contributors to the social justice Torah commentary to working against that simply by by writing pieces about all of these social justice issues and our Jewish responsibility uh, to address them um, and. Uh, and and when you read the piece on Parashat Lech Lecha, um, deserving of the land, you may think that it rings of Jewish superiority, you know, because it, it, we're all over the place, and and on purpose the book is diverse. Well, I'm I'm not I'm saying that I would agree with you that the Torah fights against that. I'm saying that as a as a social phenomenon, as a as a group dynamic, we like to feel proud of ourselves and good about ourselves. And that works against the pressures that the Torah put on puts on. Right. So it is. It is. Um, th there is this um, dilemma, I suppose, as a Jewish parent and as a rabbi concerned with a lot more kids, in addition to my own children, um, to um, to to foster. Um, Jewish appropriate Jewish pride or self-esteem, shall we say, um, while also um, fostering humility. And I guess this is where I should I should mention that you know Rabbi Shmuley mentions that, and he is also a contributor to the Musar Torah commentary, which I did before the the social justice Torah commentary. And in the introduction to this book, I write about why the Musar Torah commentary came first is because we have to work on ourselves before we can work on the world. And, and that starts, and that Musar work starts with humility. So humility, we usually think of it as an individual thing, but, but, but um, humility for us as a group has to be, you, you point out really our beautifully, Judy, how humility for the Jewish people as a group is, is necessary in order for us to proceed with, with, with social justice work. Great. I see that Jim has had his hand up over here. Jim, if you want to jump in. Yeah, thank you. I got here a little late. I apologize. Um, Rabbi, I've, I've enjoyed very much your Musser uh, 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 commentary book and, and use it on a regular basis, both for myself and for teaching. A, how do you anticipate this book will be used? And B, what's your next book? <laughs> so A, um, the way I anticipate this book being used is very much the same as the Musar Torah commentary um, in, in terms of that, that people will, what I recommend people do when they get the book, by the way, is to read the introduction and then turn to whatever Parsha we're reading this week. In other words, this isn't a book that you need to read from front to back, cover to cover, because the one, if you have the introduction under your belt, you, you don't need to have read Breshit before you, you read um, Amor. Um, you know, whatever is the Parsha this week, it's going to be relevant. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's not dependent. It doesn't assume that you've read the, the, the piece on the Parsha before. Um, I hope also that it's used, you know, I, I have been involved in the official social justice work of the reform movement for a long time, particularly um, from, the, from the perspective of the Central Conference of American Rabbis. And very often our justification for that work has been slim, has been thin, is the way I described it. And I'm looking to beef that up. 
to have more for us to say about what's the basis of our social justice work. So that's my number one goal really in the, in, with, with this book of how it's gonna be used. Thank you. Okay, time for one last question. If somebody wants what, to jump what's in. Next? What's next, Rabbi? Oh yeah. Oh, you asked me what's next, what's next? Well, you know, we may have to keep everybody every, everybody in suspense. Um, and what's next I'm gonna say is, the, is, is, is Rabbi Yankowitz's um, um, social justice commentary of Proverbs. I, I think I'll have something next. But but it's it's too early information to to really think about. It's sitting in my you know I don't I, I'm the type of you know there's people who have who always have hundreds or twenty tens of thousands of emails in their inboxes and there's people who have small numbers of emails in their inboxes. I'm one of those people who has very few emails in in um, in those. Um, in their inboxes and one of the you know half dozen emails in my in my gmail inbox which is now a few months old is a response from Raphael to an email titled my next book question mark so we'll get there but right now i'm really interested in talking about this one <laughs> amazing amazing thank you so much rabbi beard block for this exciting presentation and um and how exciting for us to deepen our torah learning those of us who are in the world of advocacy and movement work. So we hope you'll check out this book and Raphael at CCR Press, continue all your amazing work up over there and um, wishing everyone a blessed day, a day, uh, once again, a weekend approaching Tuba Shvat and MLK Day, where we can think about environmental justice and, and racial justice intertwined. And we as a Jewish community can do our part. Have a great day. Thank, thank you for having me, Rabbi Shmuley. And thank oh. you, Pam, for your excellent arrangements. Thanks, everyone, for attending. I appreciate okay. it. Stay well. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybeitmidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.